SAFM, leading the conversation. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. Songhezo Mabete on SAFM. Professor Jonathan Janssen, sir, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to SAFM. It's the first time in nearly five years I'm interviewing you. The honor is really mine. It is mine too. Thank you, sir. Let's talk about education. Let's talk about TVET colleges in South Africa, particularly in the context of skills development, obviously, but especially aligning the output of TVET colleges to the deficit the country needs. And I would imagine this deficit evolves over time. And I would equally imagine in a South Africa context that deficit becomes quite unique or especially evolutionary, given the fact that there is skills flight of the kind that should, I think, be concerning of a country. Before we get into those issues, let's just have a conversation from traditional universities as we have known them to be, your UFS, your Stellenbosch, and your TVET colleges, and and, and why young people should not think the be-all and end-all is with your traditional public universities but TVET colleges just as well are an avenue to participate meaningfully in the economy. Yeah, I agree with that, of course. Um, <clears throat> the problem is how do you convince uh, young people, how do you convince a society in which over centuries, you know, uh, the idea, uh, and this is not just true for South Africa, it's true for almost every colonized African country. The idea has been put in, in people's minds that, you know, you go to university, you work with your head, you go to, um, you know, a technical college, you work with your hands, which of course is nonsense. But there is a status associated with going to university and getting a degree, even though logically, you know, it makes more sense for many more young people to go to technical colleges and or technical uh, tibets and get a good uh, set of skills, you know, uh, in in uh, that enables them to 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 get good jobs and and of course earn good money. But try and tell an average parent that, or aspirant middle class parent, or a child, a young person, uh, that uh, choose a TVET over investor they want. And so the only people who end up in TVETs are mainly those who didn't get into university. In other words, it's a second choice. By the way, this is true in Botswana, this is true in Zimbabwe, this is true in student of mine just to study on Namibia. It's exactly the same problem. So so um, the ideal that you and I share that the minister, I think, also, you know, punts is we need to reverse, <clears throat> you know, this this trend of more students applying to university. But you're not going to do that when there's such a strong embedded you know, value system. Here's what I'm hearing you say here, Prof, and I and, and I can many in many respects relate with that. I'll give you a practical example of when I was in high school, traditional former Model C school, East London, Selborne College. There was a school there. Now, you may have heard of it. It's called Port Rex, and it's a technical school. Yeah. We would refer, as Selbornians in this regard, as those who went to Port Rex, 
as spanners. And we were not saying that in a complimentary tone. There was a derogatory Mm. context associated with that. And Mm. I would imagine that has pretty much been the characterization of your technical schools. So it's not Mm. just about convincing a parent or a pupil to go to a TVET, but it's also what that child or that parent understands of even a technical school, if this very microcosmic example is to go by. Someone thinking that they are better off because they don't deal with spanners in the literal sense. Whereas the technical skills, a majority of those learners who come out of the technical school, if you would assess his or her value to society as at the end of grade 12, you'd probably find the gentleman or the lady from Podrex would be in a better position to fix a leaking tap, to mechanic a vehicle, to be an electrician, or anything in the artisanry space. But then the question that becomes important. Why is that not a culture that is inculcated as an alternative to open, close quote, traditional streams of academia? In other words, it's not just the typical, what I would have experienced anyway, but there are many ways of getting one to be ready to participate meaningfully in the economy. And in this context of this conversation, the technical aspects are just as crucial, possibly if not more, particularly when we're talking about the skills deficit in the country, the turnaround time it takes to secure artisans to perform work that stitching time saves nine and the costs associated with that. Why are we not getting right? Why would it still be a colonial legacy? And if that is indeed true and very powerful legacy, what meaningful programs are being deployed to attend to that yeah so so okay so there's two parts to this problem the one that we just discussed is Mm -hmm. history and history is a really powerful thing you know uh, uh, in the present Uh, but there's another reason why young people don't go to tvets and that is that the tvets themselves uh, do not perform in a way that uh, makes them attractive to young people. So you go to average TV college, particularly in the rural areas, they're under-resourced, they do not have the latest technology, they do not have the most highly skilled technicians, um, uh, etc. So when you get there, it is not like the environment itself is culturally and technologically, you know, top class. And so students know that. I mean, let me give you an example of this. I have met... Uh, students whom I've mentored who were teachers in schools, you know, mm. who were automatically hired to teach in TVETs. Do you know how different teaching <laughs> uh, Sasutu or history in a school is than teaching, you know, high-level technical skills in the TVET? Mm. But because we have... So, so what I'm saying is not just the weight of history, it is also the fact that those colleges have not been deeply transformed. Why do you think they don't have this debate in Germany? They don't have this debate in Germany because when a kid goes to a technical college in Germany, it is the latest, you know, technologies, the best technicians, and, of course, that makes it attractive. So and that's given us Mercedes-Benz and BMW and, and the like. And BMW, etc. And, and, and so on. So, so there it's actually a mark of pride, you know, that I could go. So um, it's both the past but also the present in which we shoot ourselves in both feet. Which begets which? Is it the fact that it's under-resourced in far-flung areas outside, open, close quote, the mainstream that creates this problem? 
or is this problem and the history associated with it that creates the lack of resource, the lack of interest, and the lack of participation by other sectors of the broader education projects and stakeholders? Well, it's a problem of leadership. You know as well as I do that in some of the most rural parts of this country, we have the best math and science schools, take and go in, in Toyendale, for example. Take, I mean, I can go through schools in the Malazi. So there's nothing about being in a township or being in a rural area that automatically means you're not going to get a good quality education. question is, we haven't thought of a strategy beyond just giving money to DVETs or, you know, misfashionedness to We haven't thought about how do you change these cultures how do you bring in only the best uh, you know, technical personnel? How do you make sure that... And that requires... That's a set of questions we don't talk about. What have we talked about for the past several years? It's simply about how to get more money to the TVS, particularly in the form of, of bursaries. Now, if that is where the debate stops, then there is no way we overcome the weight of history. And so I've had many... You know, and senior students doing theses on this problem. And I can tell you now, yeah. there's huge potential with leadership, both at the political level, but also at the institutional level, in other words, at the level of the technical colleges themselves, who can, and there are some provinces, the Western Cape is a very good example, where they've been able to do that, to push back against the weight of history, but it does require a level of leadership uh, at both political and college levels. One word for you, Prof, Soltech. What did you say? One word for you, Soltech, and this is what I mean. Yes. Soltech, none of what you say applies to them, or the majority mm. of what you say does not apply mm. to them. And they are what? An institution three, four years old, a COVID project. Mm. Mm. And, and they don't, whilst in a South African context, with all that history, perhaps mm. slightly nuanced, Soltech being as how they have positioned themselves, mm. all of that notwithstanding. Mm. But you don't get from Soltech, the kind of challenges you will get, for instance, from Ikalativ at colleges, which is just outside Queenstown, formerly Komani, mm. Esbele. Mm. Why is that? Yeah, again, there's leadership uh, at the local level. Let me give you a very good example of this. Forget TVET colleges, right? Mm -hmm. What is the best, the best technical school in South Africa at the moment? It's a school in a very rural area called Bonneville, and the school is named after... Uh, Mandela's former DG, Jake Scarborough, who's mm -hmm. also the manager. You go there, you see the farmers are contributing, you see the local community contributing, you see the children of the farm laborers coming into that school, and they leave with, with pride, they leave with skills, etc., etc. So there is a broad stakeholder involvement, there's leadership at the level of the school, and they don't have these debates either, you know, can be done. You're bringing something in, in as much as I want to bring in the listeners. I've already received two messages that I would really like to read out to you. But for those of you who are contemplating traditional higher education, typically being your South African public university or private university and or college, the conversation really is the role of TVET colleges in skills development in South Africa that comes with it all, the bridging the skills gap, which is obviously there, but that probably also comes with aligning the curriculum with what industry's requirements are, 
national imperatives and objectives are and community-based and sort of local or, or localized challenges for the value of that TVET college to be to that catchment area. So these are the entry points Professor Janssen and I are in conversation over this evening. Please call us 086-000-2032. That's the number to get talking on this and I would love somebody who is predisposed to the technical um, environment of education to breathe and offer context, nuanced context as it, as it may be to this conversation. Prof, here are a couple of messages. Good evening, great show. We need more technical people. So many young people don't have, don't know how to do the basics like change a plug or a tire. Girls need to learn domestic science. We are short of people with technical skills. It's no good having a degree a mile long if you can't do practical basics. My dad was a technical person and was amazing making all sorts of things in in the context of metal and wood. I just don't get the lost um, words there. Kat in Peter Maritzburg says, boys used to do woodwork as a subject at academic schools. Girls used to have needlework. These are useful skills. Techie learners, as it were, can go on to create jobs. Why not incorporate into academic school subject options? Those are contributions so far. Prof, you touched on something critically important, which then perhaps goes broader than the physical infrastructure and earth of that property being the school. The role of the community and stakeholders more broadly, you're talking about how a farmer lends a hand to the school, named after Professor Jake Scherver, how the community, something as simple as the community ensuring that all that physical infrastructure, its integrity will be maintained. There's nobody's going to to vandalize the school. If a benefactor mm. comes and drops off 15 computers, those 15 computers are not going to find their way in some teacher's home or some pupil's home or is yeah. some druggie's home who's just going to sell it on for uh, a shot or whatever, a spiff as it's called. Can we really just zone in on that point which you didn't honor enough, I believe, by talking about how when a community owns a project like a school or an investment like a school or a space like a school, and this could be true for a clinic, for instance, or even the railways that run through that, mm. how that community tends to mm. generally move with all the indicators in the right direction. Yeah, you know, it's, it's actually a tourism that when you, when you get the buy-in of the community to support a school or a college or a university and so on, nothing disappears. In fact, the other day I was at the school in Mitchell's Plain which is located at the intersection of three or four gang, gang areas, you know. Mm -hmm. And the principal was telling me that now and again they lock the gate of the school. You know, not as Now and again they will lock the gate, you say? Yeah, yeah. Wow. They, 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 not, nothing, nothing disappears because the gangsters say, this is our school, our kids are there, you know. But they, that, that doesn't happen automatically. That happens when you take the community into your confidence, you know. And and make them feel that it you know there's a reason we don't call these government schools in the legislation it's called public schools you know and so you're quite right if we are able if we're going to start anyway you don't start by fixing the school from the inside you fix it from the or the college you fix it from the outside and if you could get those stakeholders in the rural areas your farmers you know your agricultural sector your you know getting those people involved let me tell you something you can transform these technical colleges very very easily but the mistake we make is to think that the answer is with government it doesn't of course government has to create an enabling environment as we often say but ultimately it is those communities that have to own that institution 
and make it theirs. And from there, you can you can build anything, actually. Let's take a call. Professor Jonathan Janssen on the line, Professor of Education at Stellenbosch University, formerly VC at the University of the Free State. Colin in Cape Town, good evening. Thank you for calling. Uh, good evening, Zabeza, and good evening, Prof. <clears throat> you know, lots of parents want their children to go sky high and, and they're not capable of doing it and things like that, so and so. Everybody's not, as I said, university material. Now, apprenticeship. You know, when I was in school in the 60s, 61, 60, 61 when I left school, we had woodwork at school. We had sheet metal at school, the boys. And you know how many boys left the high school that just barely passed matric and did a JC in it and became sheet metal workers and became fantastic artisans. The girls did domestic sides, those days typing, hairdressing, you name it. Why aren't the schools having it now? And um, then I went to the railways. And I went into the engineering, a place called Salt River Works. And there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of workers there. We did everything there, from a coach to the train, from we melted, we made, we, we had foundry, five um, melting metal and all this. We made everything there. We had all the artisans you can think of. And uh, we had a apprentice school there in Salt River Works. And we turned out 200 apprentices every year. From there, they went into various workshops. A fitter went there, a turner went there, an electrician went there, a plumber went there, and a boulder went there, a bricklayer went there. And Thursdays, they used to go to tech in town and do the theory work. After 1994, 1995, 1996, I left in 2009. I left the engineering there. In 2001, they closed the apprentice school down. And that place is a ghost town now. Salt River Works. They can't even fix a train. They can't even build. There is no artisan. There's nothing. It's a ghost town. When I walked in there, was over 3,000 people working there. Artisans. The best. New works had artisans. They used to paint the railway stations, repair everything on the railway. Railway houses repair. They had that. Eskom had their own electricians, fitters, boilermakers, everything. Colin, we get, the, we get the passion. We get the passion. I appreciate that. Thank Prof, you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Colin. I think, can I summarize through a question what Colin is saying? How much of what was working due perhaps to the emotion of the period from which the country was emerging? Mm. Did we lose in an attempt to make a decisive break away from what was apartheid to forging a new national identity, new programs, and, and, and? I mean, I can't imagine if, for instance, what Colin is talking to now or referring to as his experience, it wouldn't be relevant for me or somebody of my generation, more especially exacerbated by the current economic outlook, high youth unemployment made worse by the skills flight from South Africa. Yeah, no, I think all of those things work together to give us the situation we can say absolutely correct. And I loved Colin's observation. It wasn't always like this, you know, and that is a fact. 
we were too ambitious. We wanted to make every kid an academic kid. We put huge amounts of money into science and math. And listen, I like science and math, but not every kid is going to do well in science and math. There are kids who are going to do well in arts and culture. There are kids who are going to do well in fitting and turning, et cetera, et cetera. And so I do think, you know, we are reaping what we sowed by putting so much emphasis on academic schooling. Have you ever seen a celebration of results in the TVET college? No, no but no. you see celebration of one after the other smart kid in, in the matric exams. You know what I'm saying? And 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 again, it is correct. I did what you were required to do woodwork in school. <laughs> I wasn't very good at it, I must confess. But um, At least you're not you to know, use a plane there, champion. <laughs> but there were other children, you know, who were much better than me, but who perhaps didn't do well as well in physics or chemistry. So so part of learning is to understand that there's a range of skills that children have and you have to provide for all of them. So it's too late to solve this problem in a way which I think is is, is the point you are making when you get to technical and vocational colleges. You have to develop those positive attitudes towards these other disciplines like, you know, the the uh, I mean, to use old language, the needlework, the woodwork, the, the metalwork, and so on, so that students, because a lot of students are proud of the ability to create, to construct, to, to, to develop with their hands and their heads, you know, uh, new products that work for the betterment of society. Let's talk about where the skills are necessary and deployed. For instance, I would imagine artisans, particularly mm. with water, particularly mm. with electricity, particularly with civil infrastructure, civil engineering, not necessarily as engineers, but certainly as technicians too, looking mm. at the backlog of the public works program and the fact that whilst the government has access to so many properties, there are still schools that do not have the necessary infrastructure, clinics and other outlets that otherwise require um, a public infrastructure of pedigree, as it were. Mm. How could that deficit be merged? Not just yeah. in the public sector, but for instance, look at in the private sector, mm. the fact that so much of this skill is imported. For instance, Mercedes-Benz, East London. You've got VW in Utenaig and Toyota in KZN. I mean, if we had proper programs, not at TVET level, but at technical school level, that become graduates at TVET and literally into industry, to use these three words, Toyota, Mercedes-Benz, and VW as an example, but in, in across all industries, ESCOM, um, Transnet, Spornet formally, what would be required to merge or to align what is taught to what is needed and valuable immediately just about to the economy? What sorts yeah. of conversations are required there? Well, I tell you, there's one conversation, and I've had this talk around the country recently, and that is to bring together industry and tech and, and schools and universities and sort of say, give us your smartest kids. You see what a Toyota does. I have to know what they do because I sit on their boards. What Toyota does is to take talented young people right, with a, a feel for the technical and the technological, and they train them on the site. You don't walk into Toyota and suddenly become a, you know, <laughs> a major technician. Mm -hmm. And so what we need to do is to strengthen that link 
that training link, that education and training link between what happens in schools, what happens in college universities, and what happens, uh, you know, in Roslyn in Pretoria or in East London in, in the Eastern Cape, or, as you said, the theater plants in Amazonia and so on. And then you get the idle thing, but this notion of having an oven-ready graduate, as the British call it, you know, walk straight out of school or college and you immediately a perfect technician, that's not true for any profession, by the way. And so that conversation I would like to see happen, as opposed to simply industry standing back and saying, oh, you're not sending us, you know, the right graduates. Well, go and find them, you know, offer, set up your 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 facilities at some of these schools. I used to see that when I lived in Pretoria. You know, if you looked at those technical colleges, they all had car engines in the school. They all had, you know, like, and and it was therefore easy for a kid to go from, you know, uh, that school to work in Roslyn in Pretoria and become a top-flight uh, technician. That linkage must be tightened between the schools and the colleges and the, of course, the, the workplace. I mean, if we're talking about schools and colleges, I suppose then it invites us to have a conversation that for the most part in this one we haven't had. The quality of the schools, the capacitation of the schools, not just materially, but in how that instruction is is offered to the learners, how accessible it is. For instance, I mean, one of the listeners says, yeah, there used to be farm schools where kids could learn about animal husbandry and agriculture. So, for instance, here is a school that is engaging its environment, its surroundings for development. You could have a school a block away from the SABC, for instance, and it would then be a conversation of electronics and merging that with a digital age ICT context for there to be meaning for this school to be here and its surroundings. Is the school setup, basic education now, sufficiently engaging that question or that conversation, perhaps to make the schools, colleges transition that much more seamless? What has been your experience? Oh, no, our schools are surviving. You know, our schools, uh, if you go to almost any school, their primary objective is to comply with the CAPS curriculum, which is an overloaded curriculum by anybody's account and which the focus is on the number of kids who pass. So nobody asked the skills question. Nobody asked the competence question. Nobody, you know, except rhetorically. And so the fact is we try to push as many kids. You'll see that performance again when the results come out later this month. Uh, and we we, don't, we wanted our big kids pass with the university pass. That's the discourse, as opposed to how many kids are competent enough to move from the school to a college where there's adequate, et cetera, et cetera. Let me ask you and tell you another thing, and share another thing that is very, very important and that I worry about more than the normal debates. And that is almost none of our schools, none of our universities, none of our workplaces are making AI a fundamental part of the curriculum. AI is not going to take our jobs, okay? What will happen is the jobs will be lost by people who have not been trained in every profession in the you know the the AI in AI thinking, and so we don't go there. We keep talking about the past and restoring what was missing, as opposed to talking about the future and sort of saying what kind of technology, what kind of technicians, what kind of you know 
uh, instrumentation is needed to give us a really competitive. South Africa is not a poor country in the aggregate, you know. It is a country with enormous... But it has poor time. results. I mean, but it it's not a poor results. country. It is... Yeah, but that's correct. And, and remember, we don't even do the basics well enough. If your kids can't read and count, then the rest of the discussion is almost irrelevant. You know what I'm saying? Right. And, and, yeah, and, and that's what we saw, of course, with the poll states on grade four, where 80% plus of the kids couldn't read for understanding. But let me tell you, whether you're in a technical college or university, if you can't read, if you can't write, if you can't calculate, you're dead in the water. And so, so much of our work is to just catch up as a as opposed to catching forward. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Let's continue after the break. Professor Jonathan Janssen, Professor of Education at Stellenbosch University. We will have, let's say, five minutes of the conversation with Prof. Janssen after the break. So please may I appeal to you, those who wish to participate in this conversation, to dial and dial now in the break, and we'll put you on, and immediately we get the calls out of the way so that we can have a concretized and an omnibus response, if you will, from Professor Janssen. The number to call, 86 2032 Jonathan Janssen after the break continues. On SAFM. Good evening, everybody. We are back. Professor, Professor Jonathan Janssen is offering us a class. Unfortunately, his period is ending in less than 10 minutes from now. I understand Kabelo, who is en route to Gauteng, is calling. Good evening, Kabelo. Thank you for calling. Uh, hi there. Uh, can you hear me? Uh, I can't really hear you properly. Indeed, we can. Please go ahead. Okay, yes. So um, I'm listening in on your show. And I heard one of the, the callers just gave an, an input mentioning that uh, he had finished school when he was in the, the, the 60s, I believe, and he mentioned the different programs mm-hmm. uh, that were, were, were on show at that time. So I just want to give a different perspective. Uh, Please because do. I'm, uh, yeah, I am uh, 22 years old, and uh, I kind of uh, understand exactly what he's saying. It's just that now I feel like right now we are moving towards a, a more, how can I say, it's a, 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 a distant industrial revolution, if I can put it in those words. Okay, that's why I feel like at that time, that's why we had the, the workshops and the hairdressing classes, whereas now we are moving towards more online classes, whereas now they are teaching us more AI-based um, uh, curriculums like data analytics, uh, project management online, all, all of these things which are more in line with today's type of, um, mm-hmm. what do we call, uh, uh, industrial revolution. I feel like that's why there was so much feeding out to more woodwork and stuff like that. Uh, I know I, I, I keep on saying woodwork because it's uh, the, the only thing that I can really think of now. But if you think about uh, the examples that he had mentioned, majority of those jobs, they are being done by machines now, which is why I probably feel like we're not really teaching more people. And at the same time, you also look, uh, if you're just driving along in, the, in the, the, the streets, you would find a lot of people who are holding signs which would say, uh, I have... Uh, or I'm able to, to, to do plumbing or tiling and stuff like that, which I think are stuff which used to be taught around that time in the, the 1960s and uh, during that time frame, which is why probably now you'd find that a lot of those people, they are still there, just that they're struggling to find employment. Very well. Um, Very well. Yeah, I feel like we should just work more on uh, helping out those ones who already know or already have these skills and integrating them more into society. Let's move on, Kabilo. I beg your pardon for rushing you. I, I, I hear you. I disagree. I, dis- I agree. I disagree. But Kabilo and Rutu Gauteng, we appreciate your call. Let me quickly f- go through to Ndate Wili in Kuma in the northwest. Good evening, Ndate Wili. Yes, 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 yes,
from the quick quiz. Your question is correct by saying that uh, with us in a new democratic dispensation, presently we are for, for, for the quantity rather than the quality. The results are upcoming now. The Minister of Basic Education would be pleased to see many of the students having passed rather than considering the, the, the quality. And then secondly, my point is on our educational system, Songhez. See, when democracy started, we changed our educational system close to four times. It was uh, a 2005 water education, and then from there, they came uh, uh, caps and, uh, and the other one, they are close to three, if not four different types of educational system. The problem is, as if when the, the, the structure is, is, is made, the, the, the knowledge says, they're asking to say, how do we go this, some advice, broader advice from, I mean, if the research wouldn't be that far. That's why we are up to the fourth educational system. So, my last point is, an example is, we used to have agricultural science at the level of the chair before democracy. Now, when our education started changing, and then the agriculture was paid off, and one would wonder, why on earth we are facing the, 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 the time of creating our own land or land in our hands, but now the agricultural science or land bow or agriculture was phased off and then they brought in life orientation and so on and so on. How could that have happened? Very well. I don't know how it could have happened, but Professor Jonathan Janssen would at least lead us in this conversation. I will say, because I've heard hairdresser mentioned a few times here, I have a friend, my contemporary, 40-year-old, he used his wife's profession to get a visa on the basis of it being a critical skill in shortage of countries to get into Australia. Guess what that profession was? Hairdressing. Don't downplay the skills that hands can do for an economy. And if this one is not going to appreciate those skills, talk to Mrs. Amy Bayers, who is now in Australia with her husband, who has an honours degree in communications, by the way, and he couldn't get in, but his wife could through being a hairdresser. Professor Jonathan Janssen, I think Abelo in part spoke to your initial point talking about this revolution being the fourth industrial revolution embedded in that AI and the value of AI. No, absolutely. no, I agree with him completely. And um, uh, but that's at the level of high-level technical skills, right, uh, in which you will need to know a, a lot of those things from machine learning to digitalization and so on. But, you know, over the past uh, holiday, you know, my, my, my toilet broke down. My sprinkler system refused to work. My light at the back really just, you know, got defeated. And, you know, there's any number of Malawians or <laughs> Zimbabweans who could come through with a little toolbox and fix all of those things, right? 
because they have a technical skill set uh, that is required. So there's different levels at which you will obviously require the kinds of skills. But I'm so glad you mentioned hairdressing because I, I spoke to, I mean, I, I get go to, uh, to cut my hair. And I have conversations about skills. And you notice that these young women who come from working class backgrounds, they go through on-the-job training in in doing you know, air cutting, what they call it. And in no time, they are experts. And in no time, by the way, if they invest wisely, they open up their own businesses, you know, quite apart from the ones that actually, and by the way, Australia and New Zealand have been very, very good over the years, since the 70s already, at taking South African artisans, you know, and giving them opportunities there. So you become more mobile when you have this ability to use your skills from hairdressing to pedicures to whatever they call these things and make yourself indispensable because you have a high level of skill. And a lot of that training, by the way, happens on the job uh, uh, among um, among workers who would never get to a degree or something like that. Good evening, SFM. I think I'll suggest that the whole thing was the whole schooling system must be overhauled. What if at a at a high school we introduced a compulsory technical skill that must be taken by the students, so that when they they will decide when they go to TVET college what to do and what not to do? Because introducing it at that level, it's sometimes frustrating for the students. But if we start at the high school with the grade eight, they start a compulsory technical subject. Then I think that even if this person can be a school leaver or he failed grade 12, that person will have some kind of skill that he can use and then it will solve even the unemployment rate. Thank you, it's my seller here. Uh, Songezo, uh, listen, my contribution, I am Munna Silomukhuje in Kroosland. You know, uh, Anglo-American Corporation used to take us to technical colleges like Wits Technical College to do metallurgy, three-year course at block release, six months at tech, six months at work. Analytical chemistry, six months at work, six months at tech. Sorry. <clears throat> so I don't know what, why can't we do that, continue with that uh, other industries and companies to get the people they need. Thank you. Hi. I'm Bev from KwaZulu-Natal and um, have been listening with great interest to the uh, chat. And um, gosh, I met Jonathan Jansen many years ago and have always had the greatest respect for the man. But I just want to say after teaching for 52 years, it breaks my heart to see um, the level of uh, academic achievement in that grade four level, um, the students in grade four. It would be wonderful if 
only we could use teachers like myself who are retired and who are so ready to help to uh, lift the uh, academic standards in both English and maths. Thanks so much. Enjoying your show. Great point. One caller, Sbonello M. Lazi, KZN. Good afternoon, boss. Good evening, boss. <laughs> I don't know where to start. But uh, basically, I think we, we most of the time miss the point. Education is your form of, adap- of, of adaptation. It's one of the tools that you require to adapt to a forever growing economy, to a forever growing world. Now, most of the time people think that you study one course and that's going to last you for 20 years. You, you can't. You, the world that you live in is forever changing, it's forever evolving. So the education itself should always be evolving because every individual who is alive in that planet at any given point in time should be able to survive, should be able to adapt. So if I studied accounting 20 years ago, that accounting is useless now. It, is, it has changed. If I, were, if I was a, a mechanical engineer 20 years ago, right now we are moving on to electric cars. That qualification and all those things are, are going to be slightly moved out. They're going to be slightly phased away. So education in itself is not a, 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 a static thing. It's forever growing. It's forever changing. So people should understand that what you are studying now uh, is not going to work 20 years from now. So whenever you are studying, you should always look for opportunities of the forever changing world. That right now, this is what's happening. This is what's going to be happening. I should be studying for the next few things. These, this is what's going to be coming up. I cannot be studying to be a lawyer when in the next 20 years, they already say that we don't, we don't need lawyers. Very well. I think in essence, this is what Professor Jansen, I heard. Professor Jansen, this is what Bonello is saying. Evolution, therefore, change. Constant redefinition. At least I'm picking up on the sentiments of the previous contribution. Take it from there and also go back to some of the voice notes that you want to engage, please. Sure. So, first of all, I love the idea of retired teachers. I think that should also be of course you uh, do. teachers broadly defined, <laughs> because that's that's how we contributed to the free state school system. We went for teachers and principals who were retired, and we said it's bring, but they must have a track record of success, and we brought them into the system. And the free state is doing quite well. Um, secondly, I like the other callers sort of saying, "Listen, let's recalibrate the balance between theory and practice." I do think. To put people in theory for 90% of the time and then 10% uh, of the rest in practice is ridiculous. We really need to be able to go between theory and practice. In, in, in these days, in almost every profession, including medicine, you almost meet your patients from day one. You know what I mean? You get a practical experience mm-hmm. uh, instead of just a lot of theory. And then the last call is absolutely correct. Elvin Tuffley said this best, the futurist, you know, that. The best education is one you will learn, unlearn, and relearn as technology changes, as training needs change, and so on and so forth. And so that's a very good point as well. Can we talk, oh my goodness, this point was actually in line with what you, uh how have we optimized or not optimized the CETA space? Um, Because I would imagine there is also scope there. 
exactly where I'm not too sure because I'm not quite au fait there, but the sector education training authorities, surely, as I have engaged them, I've been minded to reflect they might be, if not a very crucial stakeholder in this technical space and the transfer of skills or, or, or the migration of skills from in the traditional learning or training space to the output and commercial space. What can you say there? If, if, if there's a case, of course, to be made. Yeah, listen, first of all, um, there are seaters who do an amazing job. You remember there's different kinds of seaters for mm-hmm. different kinds of uh, professions and so on. There are some that do really well. But have you ever remembered a year in the past 30 years of our democracy where there wasn't a seater under investigation? And so part of the problem is when you have large concentrations of money somewhere, like in this space, the corruption is almost inevitable, you know. And so, we, we you know, we, we always in the development space find fighting with one hand behind our back. On the one hand, you want to curb the corruption that comes with these large amounts of money. On the other hand, you want to make sure that those uh, agencies that were set up to channel resources to people for skills training, et cetera, et cetera, actually work. And we have been our, the architects of our own misery, you know, in not being, again, taking a for example, can you think of something that can be more powerful in um, uh, uh, giving opportunities to, to poor and working class kids, but even in the same middle, uh, in such a way that they can get good quality education? But we don't do that, you see, because we constantly open to the vultures that undermine the development project at a very basic level of, of corruption. So it's hard. Yeah, well. What's also hard is to appreciate the fact that your time with me is up or my time with you is up. And I don't think either of us could not have gone on for another hour just engaging these crucially important points. And I certainly do appreciate from you as well as the participants the tone it has taken, not accusatory, but purely substantive and engaging some of the dispositions from which we all come and perhaps our own hopes for ultimately a better South Africa. Professor Jonathan Janssen, sir, thank you so much for your time. I will tell you, I have met you, incidentally, randomly at Georgetown 2017. Remember when you were there, you had just written an article, Dear White People, I Love You, But Let's Talk About the Land. That was actually your introduction to the crowd of people and places in Georgetown. Prof, really? Anyway, I appreciate it. Appreciate that very much indeed. Have yourself a great evening. And to those of you who have participated in this conversation, I really have appreciated being um, the moderator of what has proven to be one of the better engagements we've had in a while because I think it also touches a critical nerve in who we are as a people and perhaps some of the challenges we are all facing and one thing that can change and attend to a lot of those challenges education and training the time is 20 hours 59